But thank you again for coming. We're going to open up the Bibles to Matthew 13. If you could turn in your Bibles to page 1,442. And we're going to pick up on another parable here. I want to read to you from verse 24. And then we're going to go over onto the top of the next page, up at verse 36. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field... But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then over the page at the top there, verse 36, this is when Jesus is explaining the parable to his disciples a little later. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him here. Well, let me just begin by explaining a little bit about what we're doing in looking at this parable and the parables here. Matthew 13 contains a sequence of parables, little stories that teach aspects of um, here, the kingdom of God. And so what we're doing is trying to look at what Jesus had to say about his kingdom. Now, the positive reason for doing that is, of course, that when Jesus was Uh, Beginning his ministry, right at the beginning of the ministry, you can see in places like Mark chapter 1, it says that he went about preaching the good news of the kingdom. He went about announcing a a world-changing event that was going to happen in terms of his death and resurrection and explaining the repercussions in his teaching of all that that would mean for the world. And so what we're wanting to do is cast a vision a little bit of what Jesus had in mind when he talked about the kingdom and it comes out in this passage. We could also say, um, looking at it more negatively though, that if Jesus is a king and a king has a particular way of ruling, a particular order, then obviously his kingdom is going to have aspects to it that confront and contradict the world that we live in. And that's certainly what we find when we're looking at these stories in Matthew 13, that that time and time again, the way that he thinks and the things that he teaches um, are very much at odds with and in contradiction with um, the, the patterns of the world. And so for us as a, a new church, a brand new church here in this area, we're wanting to really bear in mind those two things, that the positive fact that 
in order to build a church that belongs to Christ, it needs to be a church that's shaped on him and his teaching. He's the cornerstone. Everything else we do is aligned to him. And if not, it's just a, it's just a club. It's just um, an interesting social gathering. If Jesus isn't central, if his teaching isn't central, it isn't his church. But also to think about the negative aspect of what it meant for Jesus' teaching to cut across and to confront and contradict um, the ways that people think. So with church, we, we want to be a church that um, in a very real way is able to embody and teach and practice the things that Christ taught rather than just being an, an expression, a reflection of the world that we live in. There are churches that are like that and they're just bland and tasteless and uninteresting because ultimately whatever you get in them you can get elsewhere. But the, the true church of Jesus Christ is a church which um, fully seeks to embody his teaching and therefore time and time again it will uh, in many ways contradict the world that we live in. Uh, its values, its teachings, the things that we believe and things that we practice. And so when we come to this parable, the parable of the weeds, what we're going to find is that perhaps more than any of the other parables Jesus taught, we could argue, this one, um, because of its ability to, in a way, encapsulate the full scope of human history from Christ's perspective, it does more than so many of the other parables in in doing these two things, in what, on the one hand, positively painting a picture of what it is that Christ is doing in the world, and negatively cutting across and confronting um, the way that people think, um, especially in our modern world. Now, the reason I say that is because, as humans, we all live in, in stories. We all live in um, stories that give our lives meaning, that give our lives place, that give our lives purpose and a sense of identity. Um, It's stories that motivate men to um, go to war and to do um, great deeds and to um, do whatever they do with their life. But you think about um, recent events when you've been looking in the news. The fact that Scotland wanted to have a referendum and and become independent was because the Scottish are believing in a particular story. Whether it's a, a, a right story or a wrong one is up for debate. But the story is what motivates the yearning for independence. The same is true for what's happening in Iraq at the moment. Whenever we're seeing um, men who will kill and die for things they believe in, the reason is that they are engaged in and living in a particular story. Now, of course, we can't even begin to understand that story that's motivating them because we don't share it. But that's not to say we don't have stories that inform our lives, that shape the way we live, that shape the way we think, the things we value, the things we're living for. And so in this parable, what we're finding is that it it runs and begins to cut against the predominant prevailing story which we see certainly in the West um, today. And I would say, I would probably want to argue that although it's not universal, the undercurrent that is uh, the strongest current, certainly, in the society we live in, in, in modern Britain, is that of what you could call a secular or godless naturalism. Just the idea that the world is all that there is, the universe is all that there is, and matter is all that there is. And that is a story that people live in. Not everyone buys into it on every point, but 
when you think about the overarching picture of what this story means, that we came out of nothing and that we exist today as, as chance products, that is a story which informs Western society in profound ways. Ways that I think a lot of us haven't even begun to fully understand or um, articulate. And yet when Jesus tells a parable like this, it cuts across and against the grain of that story in ways that cause it to directly contradict and um, even go at war with uh, what most modern Britons believe. And I want to show you four ways in which that's true, um, just coming from really the early part of the parable. The first is this, that Jesus claims this world as his own. He claims it as belonging to himself. Now, the story that we're brought up on with our mother's milk, as it were, um, in this country and certainly in the Western world, is that somehow we've managed to account for this, this universe, this world, and certainly our existence without any need to refer to God. And if we've done away with God, then we've also done away with uh, purpose, with right and wrong, and with consequences. Let me explain what I mean. We've done away with any sense of purpose, because for the world to have purpose, it has to have a designer, doesn't it? It has to have somebody who created it for a reason. But if you drain any element of creative design or purpose behind the existence of everything that there is, what we are left with is an empty void, a universe where the sound goes out but never echoes back to you because it is just empty. We also end up with a universe that doesn't have any real sense of right and wrong. Now, when I say that, I don't mean, of course, that... If we take God out of the picture, we can't be people who believe in and seek to practice some kind of moral way of life. But this is what I mean. That if you do believe in morals, they're only your own preferences. They're only the things that you have um, sort of cooked up in your own mind or that you have been raised to believe are right and wrong. There's nothing universally binding about them, which is why one society or even just one pocket of society will disagree with and argue with another pocket of society. And who is to say who's right or who's wrong? And this is what happens when we take away the idea of a god, a designer, one who owns the world. If there's nobody out there, there's no purpose, there's no right and wrong, and there finally and ultimately are no consequences to the way we live. There can't be. If ultimately your life is going to be snuffed out... Sorry, this is getting very heavy very quickly, but... Bear with me. If ultimately your life is going to be snuffed out and the minute that your heart stops to beat on your final uh, deathbed, that's it. That's the end. If there's no God or no spiritual reality beyond them, there are no consequences to the way you live. And ultimately it doesn't matter how you live. And so that's the story I think that we've grown up with. I know that not everybody buys into every aspect of that. But there's a logical consequence of saying that there is no God. And of course, what Jesus does here when he starts to tell this parable is immediately begins from a, a completely different assumption. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
He says first and foremost that this world belongs to him. He says it's his world. Over in the explanation across the page in verse 37, it says that he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Whenever Jesus is using this expression, the son of man, he's calling a phrase up from the Old Testament that talked about somebody, a character, a figure who would be a kind of cosmic judge. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who owns the world and judges the world. The world belongs to me. And if we start with that as our assumption about life and about existence, then everything that I've just said wasn't true of um, the secular story that we're brought up in is true in the Christian story, that firstly there is purpose. I had a friend who um, recently, I think he wanted to replace the battery or something in his iPhone. He had to do some kind of repair job. And when he took it apart, um, there are lots of tiny little screws. And on putting it all back together, there was just one screw left on his workbench, which didn't find its way back into the phone. And um, I, his question was, well, was it needed? And you know that when a designer goes to work on an item as intricate and perfect as the iPhone in your pocket, every little part is actually essential. And the same can be said for, for life and for the world and for creation. That when we know that there's a God behind it all who's working in and through it all, suddenly everything in life has meaning and purpose. Of course, what that is, is the next question to discover. But we can affirm confidently, Jesus says... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. He is making a claim on this world. He's also saying, of course, assuming that there's then right and wrong. It runs through the parable that there's good seed, there's bad seed. And he's saying that there are consequences. This really comes through at the end of the parable when he talks about judgment, which I'm not going to deal with so much today, but we'll come up in later when one of the later parables reiterates this stuff. But I want to just turn with you again to that passage I read at the very beginning, Colossians 1, which says this to us from a slightly different angle. Paul said in Colossians 1.15 that he that is Christ is the image or the representation of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What we are discovering in the way that Jesus describes his kingdom and the way that Paul describes the rule of Christ is that there is this assumption behind the scriptural writer's writings that we are accountable to a God who owns the world. That can be a source of terror uh, when you don't know that God, but it's also a source of the most immense and profound comfort When I read these verses in Colossians 1, to know that in him all things hold together, to know that Christ owns the world and therefore that he is sovereign over it in control of it, that not only has implications for the big picture of human history, it has implications for your life. It has implications for your day-to-day existence. You're living and breathing, you're working, you're sleeping, you're playing, you're relating to other people. It's his world 
and you are his. You belong to him. He has a claim on you. The second way in which this parable really cuts across the story we've grown up in is this, that he says to us that the world is broken. Here's what I mean. If you follow along with the the storyline that's at large in the world today, um, of everything that is in existence coming into existence by by chance, by its own, uh, by an accident, really, then it's a story of profound miracles that somehow happened without any person behind them, but of things also growing more and more complex, more and more beautiful, and more and more good throughout the passing centuries and millennia, and even into the billions of years. So when we look around at the world around us, or when you... And we see all the beauty and the order and the magnificence in creation. The claim is, of course, that it all started somewhere with just a bang and that we ended up with this. And when we look at the way it's portrayed in just sort of cartoon pictures in our textbooks and school books and on the, on the BBC website, um, on countless articles, it's, it's the pig, picture of progression and progression and this idea that the world is getting better has caused humans, caused the Western world to buy into a kind of optimism about, about life, about the world, about our ability to fix the world. I know that there are times like in the last century when that optimism took a massive hit because of world wars in which humans were killing each other by the million. But... Despite that, there is still, I think, a large today, a, a feeling, a sense that if we pull together, that we've come this far from, from the mud, essentially. We've come this far. There's no reason why we can't, if we find the right solutions, if we, if we work the angles, we can fix the world. We can make it a better place. Now, I'm not in any way wanting to go against the the right desire to improve life. But what I am wanting to cut, cut against is this idea that things are just inevitably on the rise. You know, we look at our technology, we look at medicine, we look at science, and we look at the fact that there's not been a world war for 69 years. And I think that humans can begin to trip into or fall into a false sense of security that we are, we are going to get things right in the end. Now, Jesus, again, just reiterating, just in, encapsulating the Bible story, cuts against that at the, the deepest level because he says it's quite different. He says that while the man had gone out to sow good seed in his field and while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the weeds and went away. So what Jesus says is he tells the story in a completely opposite way. He says that the world we begun with was a good world. And that somehow it became corrupted, it became twisted, it became broken. Why does it matter that we get this right? Why does it matter that we understand this, this huge difference in the way Christians tell the story? And I would say it's this. Because how you diagnose the problem affects then how you attempt to treat the issue. 
If you think that the sicknesses that are at large in this world are just due to a lack of development, a lack of technology, a lack of um, advancement or evolution, then that's where your hope and faith is going to lie. But Jesus, when, and the Bible, really shows us a very different account. It shows us that the real problems, the reasons why the world is sick, the reasons why there is war at all, the reasons why things don't work out the way we hope they will, and why ultimately things cannot improve beyond a certain level, is that there is a sickness that is in the human heart, that it is the sin and brokenness of our being in rebellion against the God who made us. There was a famous, um, famously succinct way that this was expressed by the essayist of the last century, G.K. Chesterton, who when he saw um, a question put up in the letters section of the newspaper where someone was asking, what's wrong with the world? His answer came in just in a a couple of lines where he said, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am. You're sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And his point was essentially that even if we try to fix the world by whatever humanitarian organizations, technology, medicine, all the things, the, ways, the good ways in which humans seek to pull together and improve our conditions, it doesn't address the fundamental problem, which is that our hearts are in rebellion against the God who made us, that we don't know him unless we know him through Christ. And this is potentially a depressing view unless you realize that God has offered us a solution. Unless you realize that Christ is inviting you back to himself to know him, to know him personally. So he claims the world as his own. He, he tells us that the world is a broken place that it's become corrupted, that it's fallen down from the condition in which God made us. The third thing he, says, he shows us, and this is where it gets even more difficult and more controversial and more hard to swallow. He says that there are two kinds of people in this world. This is what I mean. If we buy again into the, the storyline of of the secularists, of the godless, of the people who tell us about a world that came into existence without God, then essentially everyone around us is just biology. And if we're just biology, there's no... There's no uh, inherent, nothing inherently good or bad about anybody. And moreover, whatever rights we have, we create for ourselves. And so you see increasingly... Movements who want to say, look, if we are just animals who've just arisen out of the mud, then we ought to give the same kind of rights that we give to ourselves to animals. We ought to protect them with the same, what they call human rights, but then apply to animals, even to plants, whatever is living, whatever organisms are out there. But Jesus doesn't buy into or believe a kind of um, a flat view of humanity that just says you're just biology, which is the problem with that perspective. He tells us about a spiritual dimension to who we are. And it comes out in the way he, he talks about um, the field as containing two types of plants. He says, in verses 38 and 39, the field 
is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. What Jesus is saying is that there are two kinds of humanity in the world today. And in making that kind of a claim that there are the wheat and the weeds, I know that this is, this is probably where Christians run into the biggest problems and the, and the most difficult trouble because it sounds so exclusive, so judgmental and so um, sort of cliquey, doesn't it? To think that we, there's a kind of in crowd and that we belong to it, but there's people out there who don't. And, so, and to call ourselves the wheat and to say everyone out there is the weeds... It's deeply offensive to modern ears. It's deeply offensive to the society we live in, which wants to champion ideas like equality and the rights of every person, even if it's contradicted by our killing of babies in wombs and so on. But I want to just come back with a few thoughts that would just help you to understand why Jesus believed this perspective, why he taught that there were these two types of people in the world. The first thing I want to say is that the distinction he makes between the wheat on the one hand and the weeds on the other, between the people who belong to him, the church, the people who are part of his kingdom, and the people who are not, that distinction is not a moral distinction. The reason I say that is because look at the way he describes the two types of people. He says the good seed They're the sons of the kingdom in verse 38. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. When Jesus was preaching to his generation, he was Jewish and brought up in a religious home and preached to religious Jews. He was talking to the people who arguably were the most moral people on the planet. But in John 8, you find that he addressed them and called them Sons of of the devil. It's the same kind of language that we get here. Sons of the evil one. Sons of the devil. What he was showing us and what he shows us throughout the Gospels is that even the most moral people are not, by being good, part of his church, part of his kingdom. They're not wheat. Well, then you say, well, what makes a difference? The difference is simply this. It's who you are related to. Two, it's there in the language when he says that the wheat are the sons of the kingdom, the sons, the children of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. This is not a moral categorization of humanity between those who are good and those who are bad. This is a familial categorization. It's saying that there are certain people who call God Father who know the living God as their Father in a real living way, in the way that we were just singing about in that song, how deep the Father's love for us. This is not saying that those people are better people, that they are um, in some way more qualified to be part of God's people, His church, the kingdom. It's just saying that they have come to know God as Father. And here's another thing I'd want to say. It may sound like the most exclusive kind of way of segregating humanity. But when you look at the teaching of Jesus, Jesus was radically inclusive. He not 
only taught that there were people who were outside and inside. He also gave a blanket invitation to anybody who was outside to come inside. Just a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 11, he says to us all, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation, by the way, to become part of Christ's family. And then he gives a little bit more of a picture of what that looks like. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This, friends, is one of those small sections of Scripture which, again, encapsulates what the good news of the Gospel is, what Jesus was, was offering to people. I'm trying to make the case that even if Jesus segregates humanity into these two groups, he does so with an invitation to anyone who, is, who doesn't know him to come to know him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And he uses this picture of the yoke, the bar that's laid across the animal's shoulders as they work the field. And he says, you can come under my yoke. In other words... To come into my family is to come alongside me, whereby all of your sin is transferred to me and all of my righteousness is put on you, and then we walk together side by side. And that is the offer of the gospel. To come into Christ's family and to be joined to him and to know that you are no longer outside, away from home, alienated from God, hostile to him, but now you are inside. You've come home. You've discovered what it means to know God's love. You've felt his love shine upon your heart. You've experienced the power of his spirit in your life. You know what it means to be clean. You know what it means to be washed and to experience God's loving kindness and forgiveness. And it had nothing to do with your being deserving of that. And everything to do with Christ's invitation. The final thing I want to draw out from this parable is that he shows us that in it all, in all the complexity and the confusion of life, God has a plan and a purpose that's at work in history. As I tried to say, this parable is one of those parables that really does span the scope of human history, gives you the big picture from the beginning all the way to the end to judgment. And here we are in the middle somewhere. We're not quite sure how far along we are, but we're somewhere along, and we're in the field. We're in the field that's mixed. We're in the field that has good seed and bad seed, that has the wheat and the, the weeds, and there's all this mixture and all this um, sin and all this um, suffering in life. And the tragedy of the story that most Western people buy into is that if, if we are here in an empty universe with no God, no Father out there who created us for himself, who made us with purpose, then the experiences of life are just random chance happenings. Whether you suffer or you don't has no bigger meaning to it. It's just nerve cells firing off when you experience pain or random chemical reactions in your brain when you experience grief. 
the sufferings and the challenges and the difficulties of life are completely empty and void of any bigger meaning or purpose. And ultimately as well, the, the story that the, the scientists tell us is that the whole universe is heading to some kind of a heat death. That in the end, as things get hotter and hotter and hotter, the whole thing is going to burn up at some point in the future. So even if, even if by some uh, crazy turn of history, humankind was able to pull together and diminish suffering as much as possible and to get rid of poverty and sickness and all those kinds of things, even in a best case scenario, it would all burn in the end anyway. And I think this is a tragic and a despairing and a hopeless way of looking at life. What Jesus tells us here is something very different. If you look down at verses 27 to 30, the way he tells the parable is he says that the servants of the master, these are the angels, they they came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? So they're, they're wrestling with this problem. Look at the world you've made. It's full of mixture. There's good and there's bad. And this isn't how you intended it to be, is it, God? And then the farmer replies and he says, an enemy has done this. And the servants say, well, do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to pull up the weeds and, and so get rid of all the evil in the world? Just, just destroy it and leave only what's good. And he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I know that there are a lot of issues that are thrown up by this parable, not least that of judgment. And I want to look at that in a later week. But one of the things that just strongly comes through in, this, in, the, in the verses um, in front of us, that God has a purpose and a plan, even if we don't fully grasp it, but that he has a purpose that is for the benefit of his children, who Jesus here describes as the wheat. He says, the reason why God doesn't intervene to destroy all evil in the world in one you know, fast act is because he has a purpose here for the wheat. He says, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Now I know that the parable, due to the, the limitations of parables, doesn't really explain fully what that kind of purpose might be. But there are other places that we can go in the New Testament that really just paint a fuller picture of what it is that God might have in mind and why, why he allows the world to continue as it is in this condition. I think about places like this in Romans chapter 9. Verse 22 where it says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath or his anger and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called. He says, one of the reasons why God allows the world to go on as it is, to be such a mixed up place with good and bad, with People who love God and seek to live for God and seek to do His will and people who are 
wreaking destruction and havoc and hurting one another, one of the reasons why God does it is in order to work out a greater purpose in which he is seeking to do what's best for his children. Another way we could look at this is in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul just very succinctly says that we should pray for the world around us and that it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, this idea comes across in 2 Peter, another letter in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. And he's wrestling the question, well, when will the end come? He says, God isn't slow, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now you see, the same idea is coming through in all these passages that we're reading. In the parable, in the passages that Paul and Peter have written, that God allows the world to go on and to continue in the state in which we find it because he is about a saving work. He wants history to run its course because he has a great plan that arcs from the very beginning to the very end in which he is going to save for himself a number that is beyond count, it's described as in Revelation. That gives me immense hope that in doing this work, in planting a church with you guys, in wanting to share Christ's love in this city, we know that we are siding with God. We know that we are lining up with his purposes for London because this parable and these passages tell us that the reason God doesn't just stop the whole thing now, the reason why he doesn't just intervene and bring the end to bear right now is that there are more people he wants to bring into his family. He has a bigger purpose in mind than just us. He has a worldwide family in mind. As we close, I, I just want to ask you guys a very simple question really. Which story are you living in? I think that because of the ways that we're fed the story around us, in the media, in the books we read, um, in every message that's coming through, we can live in a very limited view of life where... And we can become embarrassed about the things that Jesus teaches. But Christ and his teaching is offensive, it's radical, and it cuts across the spirit of the age that we live in. And in wanting to establish and in wanting to form a new church here, we want to be people who are immersed in and believe in and are saturated in the story that Christ tells. Ultimately, it's the only story that can bring hope to the world we live in. We can tell people about a God who owns this world, who has a purpose for it. We can tell people about a Christ who, in his generosity and his kindness, is welcoming and beckoning and inviting people to be part of his family. And of course, it comes with this note that's at the end of the parable this note of warning, this note of judgment, that there is a clock ticking, that there is a time in mind when God will bring the end. But for now, there is hope. And for now, there is opportunity. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that, Lord, even if people could have laughed at you 2,000 years ago, when you began telling stories about your kingdom and your purposes in the world, no one can laugh at you now. You were raised from the dead, and everything you promised is coming to fulfillment. And Lord, here we are, generations on, and we want to be on your side. We want to be in your story. We want to be, Lord, lining up with you as you work out your plans and purposes in history. And we pray, Father God, that in your power and grace, you would enable us not only to believe the things that you've taught us, but also to communicate them. To be people who are inhabited by your word and who love it and preach it and live it, Lord God. And we ask, Lord God, that you would just imprint these realities upon us by the power of your spirit, working through your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.